Hello, and welcome back to Wait a Week Mystery. I'm your host and author, J.C. Bodden. In this week's edition, I'll be sharing with you another chapter from my novel, Someone to Watch Over Me, which is copyrighted in 2007. This particular book is the first in the Devlin O'Quinn mystery series, and it tells the story of Devlin's daughter, Jenny, who has taken a job on campus as a dorm resident advisor, where she works on her graduate degree. If you like what you hear and can't wait a week for the next installment, Someone to Watch Over Me, as well as the other three books in the Devlin O'Quinn series, is available in both Kindle and paperback format from Amazon. You can check out my website, jcbodden.com, that's j-c-b-o-d-d-e-n.com, for more information and the link to my Amazon page. Now, let's not wait any longer. Here we go with episode 105, Someone to Watch Over Me, Chapter 5, Out in the Cold. Jenny's Story I had nearly drowned in the lake at Twin Oaks Farm when I was eight. I had gone out to the middle of the lake to fish in a small rowboat with two older boys when they decided they were hot and jumped in to cool off. Never being one to back down from a challenge, I jumped in right behind them. But the shore was farther away than I thought, and the sides of the boat were too high for me to climb back in. The boys were too busy splashing and laughing to notice my panic, and the cool dark green water closed over my head. Suddenly, strong arms wrapped around my waist and pulled me up. When I opened my eyes, coughing and sputtering for air, there was another boy, fully clothed, shoes and all, pulling me to shore. To this day, I have recurring nightmares about that, and this day was no exception. I woke up gasping for air, my heart beating wildly. But this morning the dream was a little different. This time the boy who saved me was Joe. The face in the bathroom mirror showed the effects of my fitful sleep. My hair was sticking up wildly on one side, and the lines on the side of my face showed where I had lain on the bedspread. I stuck out my tongue at my reflection and started working on my hair, but I stepped in some chalky white dust on the floor. I was using a towel to brush it off, wondering what it was, when there was a loud banging on the apartment door. Okay, not so loud. I opened the door. What's going on? Oh, hey. It was one of the residents from down the hall, but I couldn't place her name. Sorry, did you know there's no hot water? What? Wait a sec. I left her in the doorway and went to the bathroom and turned on the faucet full blast. When I stuck my hand in the streaming water, it was stone cold even after nearly a full minute. I left that tap running and went to the kitchenette, but got the same result. Damn. Listen, um, I'm sorry, I can't remember your name. Latoya. Latoya. Okay. I'll call maintenance. That's all you can do, I guess, Latoya shrugged. The maintenance number was answered by a recording. Press 1 if you know your party's extension. Press 2 to speak to a department supervisor. Press 3 to speak to... Impatient, I pressed zero, hoping it would put me through to the dispatcher. After a few clicks, a nasal voice came on the line. How may I direct your call? This is Jenny O'Quinn, resident advisor at Willow Hall. We have no hot water. I need someone over here right away. I'm sorry, Ms. O'Quinn. The day shift has not arrived. I've got 150 residents wanting hot water this morning. I'll get someone on it as soon as I can, Ms. O'Quinn. That's Jordan Hall, you say? No, Willow Hall, the freshman dorm. Right, I'll put in a work order. The dispatcher sounded incredibly bored. When can they come? 
I checked the clock. They've got a pretty full schedule today. She sounded even more bored, if that was at all possible. But this is an emergency. Apparently that was the magic word. Emergency? I'll get that down on the work order. Anything else? No, thanks. I tried successfully, I hope, to keep the sarcasm out of my voice. It wouldn't do to have the people in the maintenance department mad at me. No telling when I would need them again. Hanging up, I decided to go down to the basement and check it out for myself. Maybe it actually was an emergency. Gushing water flooding the basement or some such mess. I pulled on my usual blue jeans and t-shirt, yanked my hair up, and jammed my feet into my sneakers. The boiler room was past the laundry behind a large metal door. I had seen it once during my orientation several weeks ago, but hadn't been in it since. Green paint was peeling off the door handle, and it looked like no one had opened it in a very long time. It took me several tries before I found the right key to open the lock. When I pulled back the door, there was a horrible scraping noise setting my teeth on edge and making the hairs on the back of my neck stand on end. The room was dark, the only light coming from one small window up high in the back, covered with soot. I fumbled for the light switch, tangling my fingers in a cobweb. The bare light bulb winked on, but did little to brighten the room, and I swiped the sticky silk onto my jeans. In front of me were six boilers side by side, one apparently for each hall. No puddles on the floor, no smell of leaking gas. Weird, I said aloud, wincing at the odd sound of my voice in the silent room. Weird, came a deep voice behind me. I spun around, stunned. Joe. Oh, hey. Sorry, you didn't hear me? I shook my head and pressed my hand to my chest against my thumping heart. What are you doing here? Joe smiled slowly and pointed to the toolbox he was carrying. But how did you get here so fast? Your dispatcher act like no one would ever come. Joe said nothing but handed me a pager from his pocket. On it I could read the emergency call for Willow Hall. He knelt in front of the closest boiler. Huh. What's wrong, I said to his back, forgetting yet again that he couldn't hear me. He didn't answer but stood, leaving his tools on the floor, and inspected each of the boilers. When he turned back to me, his forehead was creased with a frown. The door was locked? Yeah, it was really hard to open. Didn't you hear that horrible scraping noise? I stopped, nearly biting my tongue. Of course he hadn't heard it. I could feel the color rise in my cheeks. When was I going to remember the guy was deaf? The gas has been turned off, Joe said with what I hoped was an amused grin at my embarrassment. What? The valves are off. He made a turning motion with his hands. No gas, no hot water. Can you fix it? Sure. He hesitated, the smile suddenly gone, the forehead creased again. Well, I wondered what on earth was making him stand there like that, staring at me. But... I began to wonder about the man. Maybe he wasn't as smart as Uncle Millie thought he was. But what? Fix it. We need hot water. Somehow I managed to keep myself from stomping my foot in my impatience. He shrugged. But don't you want to know who turned them off? My stomach flip-flopped. I had been so embarrassed about forgetting his deafness and so anxious to take care of the problem that I hadn't considered this. Joe squatted down and in a moment I heard the familiar whoosh of lighted gas jets. He quickly relit all the other boilers and then stood back, wiping his hands on the ever-present rag from his pocket. It'll, ta it'll take at least an hour, maybe longer, for the water to heat. 
They've been off for a while, probably overnight. They're pretty cool. As I was locking the door back to the boiler room, I tur turned and looked at Joe, waiting patiently behind me in the hallway. You're sure that all that happened was that the valves were turned off? These things aren't going to explode or anything, right? Joe shook his head. The boilers are fine. You just need to find out who played this joke on the whole dorm. I followed Joe up the stairs and into the lobby. If it had been a joke, it certainly wasn't a funny one. But for some reason, I didn't understand. I didn't think it had been a joke. Joe's Story The boy was in sixth grade. He had made remarkable progress in his special classes, and now his reading was only one grade level behind. While still fairly thin, he was taller than most of the other children in the school, and they had stopped tormenting him years before. Today was the day before Thanksgiving holidays. There had been another fuss with his mother over whether or not he would go, but he had given in without too much struggle. After all, as hard as school was for the boy, holidays were even worse. The long weekend would become a nightmare as his mother drank her way into another stupor. As he walked slowly down the stairs, he saw her boyfriend, the man from five years previous, climbing towards their apartment. He stopped and stared at the man, but the older man staggered by, ignoring him. The youngster hesitated on the stairs, concerned by the red-rimmed eyes and the intense smell of whiskey and cigarettes that stung his nostrils. He had a flashback to the night long ago, when he had watched the man threaten his mother with a broken beer bottle. As he stood there in the shadows, the door to his apartment opened, and he saw his mother welcome the man with a cry of delight and a tear-stained kiss, throwing herself into his arms. Trying to ignore the nagging warning in the back of his mind, the child hurried down the stairs and on to school. Classes were let out at noon that day, after everyone had been to the small auditorium to see the Thanksgiving pageant. Most of the other children in the class left school with their parents, who had come to see the performance, but the boy was walking home alone. He knew his mother couldn't be bothered to deal with anything going on at school, especially with her boyfriend back. The boy walked slowly, the cold air seeping through his thin-soled shoes, wondering what he would find when he reached home. In his mind, he imagined the scene, his mother and the man drunk and asleep on the couch, with a half-eaten pizza still in the delivery box on the floor. He fought the urge to keep on walking rather than turn down the street toward his building. He told himself today would be different. Today she was at the apartment, happy to have gotten back together with her boyfriend, and the two of them were planning a Thanksgiving feast. The boy walked on, trying not to allow himself too much hope. He knew it would go in one of two ways. Either it would be gloriously happy, or it would be hell. Either there would be plenty of food and laughter, and maybe even a chance to curl up on the couch between the two as they watched the parades on television, or there would be drinking and cursing and fighting. The anticipation of what he would find was almost more than he could stand. He tried, unsuccessfully, to keep his mind completely neutral. As he rounded the corner of the street where his apartment building stood, he was surprised to see a knot of people standing outside on the sidewalk. Children and adults alike were all looking in the same direction, toward the entrance to his building. As he got closer, the boy saw the flashing lights of an ambulance parked on the street, between the crowd and the doorway, flanked on either side by police cars. He hung back, not wanting to step into the crush of spectators. He tried to see what people around him were saying. 
but everyone seemed already to know what was going on, and the crowd was silent. He stood at the back of the group, trying to peer around the people in front of him. As he watched, he saw his mother's boyfriend being pulled out of the building by a man whose red hair caught the sunlight, with a shiny police badge hanging from his suit breast pocket. The boyfriend's jeans and shirt were stained with some sort of dark liquid, and he staggered a bit as he reached the bottom of the stairs. The man with the badge jerked his arm and kept him from falling to the curb. The child wondered why the boyfriend was walking so awkwardly, as if he did not want the crowd to see his hands, which he held behind his back. He watched as the man with red hair guided the boyfriend to a waiting patrol car, opened the back door, and helped him in. The child saw the handcuffs around the boyfriend's wrists, and the reason for his awkward movements became apparent. Suddenly the crowd separated. The child sensed the movement before he actually saw it. People were turning and then stepping back. He looked up, squinting into the heatless sunlight and the flashing ambulance lights. A young girl, who lived a couple of doors down from him on the same floor, turned and pointed her finger at him. He stared, waiting for the taunting to start. He was halfway expecting the adults to join in. "'That's her boy,' the girl said flatly. He looked from her to the person she had spoken to. He was surprised to see a uniformed police officer. The crowd backed up more and let the officer walk to him. "'Hey, Sonny, how you doing?' the officer asked. "'Hey, I I'm okay,' he mumbled, still not sure about what was going on. He glanced around at the people staring at him. "'He don't talk much,' said the little girl who had first pointed him out to the cop. "'He's retarded.' The cop frowned at the girl and then back to the boy. Shh, now let's not go calling people names, he said. He's fine. Come here, my man. We need to talk. He took the boy's arms in his strong hand and led him away from the crowd toward the other patrol car. The boy began to panic. He squirmed under the hand of the officer. I gotta go. My mom's waiting for me. I didn't do anything wrong. I know, my man, I know. It's all right. You're not in trouble. The boy stopped struggling and looked up into the officer's face. He seemed more sad than angry. What is it? The child asked worriedly. Ah, uh, well, um, it's your mom, the cop began as he knelt down to the boy's eye level, pushing his hat back on his head. See? Suddenly the child was aware of everything. The entire scene flashed in his head. He saw the crowd, the ambulance, the paramedics, the police officer, even himself. He noticed the patrol car to his right, with his mother's boyfriend handcuffed in the back seat, his head drooped down to his chest, blood smeared across his neck. He saw the man with the red hair talking to another police officer. It was as if he were watching it all from above, as if he were in the attic looking through the sooty window. He watched the stretcher being carried down the steps and rolled toward the back of the ambulance. He watched himself pull away from the cop and push to where the attendants were busy adjusting the stretcher to fit into the back of the rig. He watched as he tugged at the white sheet covering the body and stared at a pale, lifeless foot with no shoe. He watched the cop grab his shoulder and spin him around. He watched as he was led back over to the patrol car and gently placed inside. And he knew, he knew that the foot belonged to his mother. And his mother was dead. That concludes this week's chapter of Someone to Watch Over Me. Thank you for listening. To find out what happens next, please come back for episode 106 of Wait a Week Mixtry or visit jcbodden.com to order the book. Either way, 
I hope your wait is a happy one.